0: Hey, everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation.
1: Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice all opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is Craig Salm, Craig is the chief legal officer at Grayscale Investments, the world's largest digital currency asset manager, where he oversees the daily legal and regulatory operations of the business and its products. Prior to joining Grayscale, Craig was a corporate associate at Paul Weiss. Craig, thanks for joining me today. Really looking forward to touching on Grayscale, everything that's happening with the ongoing case against the SEC and the ETF approval that will hopefully come in the future.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. I'm a longtime listener and first time caller or podcast (laughs) guest. Um, You've done a great job covering the crypto space since you started. And we got connected when you gave that really excellent overview of the GBDC lawsuit. And then I reached out to you. You covered a lot there and happy to continue to dive into that today.
0: Well, thanks for the kind words. And it's it's an honor to have someone like you as a listener. I've been a A fan of the work you've done, followed you on Twitter. for. It feels weird to say you followed people for years, but I've learned a lot from your tweets over time. And I've been following the grayscale, (laughs) the sort of progression of the ETF. And for those who missed that first podcast that Craig was referring to, I'll link that in the show notes below. But to, to turn the topic to you first, Craig, I'd love to hear about your Genesis block and what your introduction to the crypto space looked like.
1: Yeah, so I first learned about Bitcoin when I was in law school. I was one of those people that went to law school because I wasn't really sure about what I wanted to do, but I was told, and I still think it's true that you really can do a lot with the law, becoming either a lawyer or, or something else. And so I wanted structure, went to law school, but wasn't really sure where I would go after that. And I'm always interested in new things, whether it's technologies or or ways of thinking. And I read a lot of Wired magazine, tech journals and things like that. And the first time I, I learned about Bitcoin was in Wired when I was reading about the first, not really mainstream, but very significant application of Bitcoin, which was the Silk Road. And I wasn't interested in Silk Road because of what people were using it for. I was more interested in it because of how Bitcoin was very much powering it because this was a time when people still thought Bitcoin was totally anonymous and there were less efficient practices on preserving privacy. And so people were using Bitcoin to pay for some of the illegal things that were sold on Silk Road, drugs and paraphernalia and guns and things like that. So I just became completely fascinated by it and then started to learn more about it and wanted to really understand how it worked both at how laws get implicated by it, regulations since I was in law school, but I also wanted to understand how it worked at a deep technical level. And so I started taking computer science classes on the side to understand you know, data structures and algorithms and cryptography to better understand how a blockchain works and the timestamps and how the transactions get recorded. And back then there were actually a couple of meetups in New York City about Bitcoin People used to go to Union Square to buy and sell Bitcoin among each other with their phones. And I went to one of those to see what was going on. This is usually when people ask me whether I bought Bitcoin then. And if I had, I probably wouldn't have been where I am today or completed being a lawyer since I'd probably have a lot of coins. I also wasn't in a position to be making speculative investments on this new asset when I was in law school, paying law school bills. So I like to say it was intellectual investment into bitcoin back then so that's really how i first learned about it and the way law school works is if you if you want to get one of these big firm jobs afterwards you do really well your first year that gets you the interviews for the firms in your second year and i was fortunate enough to get an offer at a firm called paul weiss which is one of the largest corporate and litigation firms in the world and it was an offer I had to take all the while knowing that I, I was very interested in Bitcoin and wanted to keep exploring that. So that's what took me to to Paul Weiss.
0: And then when you were at Paul Weiss, you worked primarily in the capital markets and securitization space. Was that an intentional choice that you made given where things could have gone with crypto and ended up going?
1: Yeah, so similar to my approach to law school, I also wanted to approach law firm life by keeping options open and, and learn as much as I can. So I joined the corporate practice there. And they allow you to kind of explore different groups within it and then figure out which one you want to focus on for your practice. So I was circulated through M&A, securities, capital markets, investment management, finance, just wanted to learn as much as I can and work with various clients. There were no Bitcoin or crypto or distributed ledger technology clients, which they used to call it back then at the time, but it was a really invaluable experience of learning how to run a deal, work with clients, have intense attention to detail and focus. And I ended up in the capital markets group, which is working with public funds, IPOs, and things like that, just because the partners there were really top notch and super smart. They like to say that securities is the most difficult of corporate practices because it's so rules-based. And obviously they're incentivized to say good things about their particular practice. But in many ways it's true because you have this whole rule set that you have to follow and you learn about why the rules are the way they are and, and gain a deeper appreciation for that and how U.S. capital markets work. So that was a really good experience. And then after my third year, I had another great opportunity to go on something called a secondment. What this is, is firms that have large clients will send a lawyer or a couple of them to go work in-house at the client. The idea is you gain internal institutional knowledge of an important client, and then you can come back and share that with your colleagues and just be a better attorney and advocate for them. And so one of Paul Weiss's most important clients is a firm called Apollo Global Management. And so I had the the opportunity to go and, and work with them and I immediately jumped at it because I didn't really think I was going to be at a law firm forever and wanted to see what it was like to, to go in house and have that experience. And I did that for about 10 months and completely loved it. I was able to work with not just the lawyers, but the compliance team and the traders and the sales reps and marketing and operations, and really learn that holistic picture of, of how an asset management firm works. And Following that's a comment.
0: Sorry to that, interrupt, Greg. But what stage in your career was this? Was this like second year, third year associate?
1: Yeah. So this was after my third year. So I already had a couple of years of capital markets and investment management experience under my belt, and I was able to go to Apollo and and bring that while also learning about how they operate from the inside. And. After that experience, I knew that I did not want to be at a law firm forever. I wouldn't be able to make partner. It just wasn't what was on the trajectory for me. I really wanted to go in-house. And so this was when I started to sit down and put together a list of every Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain, distributed ledger technology company in the New York City area and just started reaching out to people, phone calls, cold emails, things like that. And I was fortunate enough to get connected to Grayscale because I had met somebody named Travis Scherer, who used to work at Digital Currency Group, got coffee with him, said, we'd love to just tell you what I'm trying to do, what I'm thinking. And then he put me in touch with a couple of different companies, one of which was DCG's operating company, Grayscale Investments. And so at the time, the only role they had open was an operations associate. And knowing that I had absolutely no business applying for this role, I'm not a back or middle office person. I still applied because I really wanted to get a foot in the door because it seemed like a great firm to work at. And they brought me in. I met with Barry. I met with Michael Sunshine, who at that time was managing director and had really good meetings with them. They gave me this case study, I remember where this was when Grayscale only had a Bitcoin investment trust and an Ethereum classic investment trust. And so they gave me a case study where, you know, they're thinking of launching a Zcash investment trust. Give us your full project plan, start to finish of day one. You're going to come in. How are you, how are you going to get this new product launched? And so I spent the whole weekend doing as much research as I could, putting together presentations and excels, just figuring this stuff out on the fly. I was a corporate lawyer. I didn't know what it meant to be a a project plan or operations associate came in, presented, thought I killed it. Everyone thought I did a great job, went home. And then unfortunately got the call from Michael saying, we're not giving you the offer was completely defeated. Didn't know, understand why. And then we just went back to continuing to reach out to different companies. Fast forward to around November, 2017, which was when Consensus used to do a couple of different conferences. One was the global one for developers and industry. But then they used to do Consensus Invest, which was for lawyers, accountants, investors, institutions. And so I went there just continuing to try to network and meet people, put a suit on, bought a ticket, no intention of going to any of the panels or anything, just wanted to meet people. And I saw Michael Sunshine with the grayscale booth and walked up to them and said, Hey, how are you doing? And he said, we're great. Like, how, how are you? Have you found anything in crypto yet? And I said, no, still looking. And he said, it's really fortuitous that you're here because we're having our company offsite in a couple of months. We're probably going to want to bring on our first attorney, hit me up in the new year, we'll bring you in and see what we can do. So did that, came in, got the job. that was about five and a half years ago today. And since then we've just completely built out the business in terms of products, AUM, building out the legal team, compliance team. Uh, So it's been quite the journey. Wow. The the other thing I'll say is thinking about how this all comes together from my deep interest in Bitcoin and crypto with my professional experience at Paul Weiss in capital markets, investment management, Grayscale is the perfect marriage of those two things because we are a firm that operates very much like a traditional asset manager. So that's the Paul Weiss experience that I had but we manage non-traditional assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other crypto assets.
0: And when you went to apply for the legal position, did they did you do a Zcash presentation from a regulatory side, or was there any
1: component of, of there? I actually I don't know if I did a case study, although I am very for doing case studies for candidates that we hire today. I think just based on the excellent work I had done for them for the operations associate role. And then just given my professional experience and resume, they were comfortable enough to, to give me the offer without doing yet another case study.
0: (laughs) And had you, had you, I mean, I think the secondment must have been helpful in preparing you for a role in house. Were there experiences you had at Apollo and other things you did prior to starting your role in order to prepare for, what you would do to hit the ground running once you started?
1: So Paul Weiss was completely invaluable to teach me how to be a capital markets securities attorney. That's really the only kind of experience you can get at one of these big law firms. Teaches you how to be very professional, institutionally minded. The Apollo experience was similarly invaluable to show me what it means to not be at a law firm, but to be an attorney in-house because You can't just be solely focused on doing what the lawyer needs to do. You have to think about all the other stakeholders and see how all of those pieces fit together to help the business continue to thrive. And so those two collectively really set me up to do the work that I do at Grayscale. The fact that it's also married with the deep intellectual curiosity I had in Bitcoin starting in law school through ultimately getting the job is really all how it kind of came together.
0: It's amazing hearing the stories of lawyers in this space because, as different as the paths have been, they're not too dissimilar, right? There's an interest in this area. I want to understand the technical side. I remember myself going through CS fifty from Harvard.
1: Yeah, that's the class I took with David. Was so, it
0: okay? Yeah, okay, and and just trying to learn the computer science like the basic level and then building that sort of bridging that technical understanding with the legal side. And it's been, it's a fun journey and it's good because Bitcoin forces you to learn those things. You can't, you can't understand it unless you understand the basics of computer science and like cryptography and everything as well. So that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. I mean, I also think that learning how to program is not so dissimilar from what it requires to be a good attorney in terms of whether you're drafting an argument or if you're drafting a contract, because the contract itself is basically the same kind of thing as what you're doing when you code, where you're creating rules with different conditionals. If you're changing something here, you need to make sure it doesn't break there. So in many ways, a contract is really just code that gets implemented through attorneys and the courts rather than through a computer.
0: It's a great analogy. And I think it's part of the reason why so many lawyers in the space jump into crypto, because we see how expensive trust is and and all these different areas that we have to enforce contracts. Whereas if you can have something encoded and make it that much more efficient, it could be a net positive for everyone and they might need less lawyers in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people have been saying that smart contracts are going to eliminate or disintermediate lawyers for a long time. But I think... You'll always need us no matter how digital contracting becomes, because you need that person there who can properly write it, whether that's in code or a traditional contract, and who thinks about things like, how do I make sure this is implemented properly, and I'm not breaking things here, and it works, and is executed the way it's intended. Maybe language will become as objective and dry as code, but I don't know if we're we're quite there yet.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's it's incorrect to say that we'll need less lawyers. If anything, there might just be less of a need to rely on the courts for certain things to uphold contractual agreements that were drafted in combination with a lawyer and programmer. But that's that's a whole nother can of worms. Let's focus on. We're uh, doing like a, a
1: three to five hour podcast here.
0: <laughs> we due to due to time constraints, we are not able to do a five hour podcast <laughs> today. But we will uh, maybe in the, maybe in the future that would be fun. Let's, let's switch to, to Grayscale. And I want to talk about the spot ETF approval, obviously that that's ongoing, but in terms of the timing on that, why has it taken so long to get this approval?
1: Yeah, so Grayscale launched because we knew that investors would want to access Bitcoin and what would evolve to become the more broader crypto asset class. But they would want to do it through traditional investment wrapper means they want their investment to look and feel just like their investment in stocks, bonds, other commodities, which is to say through their brokerage account, they want audited financial statements, tax report, and regulation. And so we would have launched all of our products at the outset as the traditional vehicle that has become the most accessible and efficient way to access many other asset classes, which is the exchange traded fund or ETF. But back then, and unfortunately still today, that type of product has not been approved f- to hold any other, any crypto asset. So what we have come up with in the absence of that is this four stage product life cycle where each stage results in the product becoming more accessible for more kinds of investors with the fourth and final stage being that holy grail of an exchange-traded fund. Because this is a law-focused podcast, I would love to just break those four steps down and what the applicable regulations are and how we how we accomplish that. So stage one is a private placement offering, which is offered under an exemption from registration under the Securities Act of 1933, otherwise known as the 33 Act. What's important to note there is that initial offering can only be sold to accredited investors, meaning investors of a certain level of net worth, income and sophistication. And those investors have to hold their investment for at least one year. And so you might say, well, if the SEC is okay with is not okay with a Bitcoin ETF, which could be accessed by retail investors and freely tradable, why are they okay with this kind of offering, this private placement? It's essentially a policy decision which is to say there's less of a concern from an investor protection standpoint, if an investor is essentially wealthy and holds the investment for at least a year, because they can bear the risk of that investment. So taking Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, as an example, that launched in 2013 as just a private placement offering to accredited investors. The next stage is following that one year, all of those accredited investors can now freely sell their shares if they want to, pursuant to something called Rule 144, which governs the transfer of, of securities that were bought in a restricted offering, this exempt private placement. But if you don't have any place where you can sell them, you, know, you don't have a marketplace or an exchange, well, you're not really going to be able to transact. And so the other rule that we leverage is something called Rule 15c211, which was what allows brokers and dealers to show quotations and securities on a marketplace and in our case that marketplace is the otc markets and so what's important to note there is that not just accredited investors but also retail investors can now buy those shares and those shares when purchased are not subject to any restrictions or holding periods they are freely tradable and so again taking gbtc as an example that first started publicly trade on the OTCQX, which is the top tier of that OTC markets group, in May of 2015. So that was a, a very significant accomplishment. Again, just thinking about each stage, making these products more accessible for more kinds of investors. And so on OTC markets, their rule set is called the alternative reporting standards. It's very similar to SEC reporting standards in that there's annual reports, which are analogous to 10Ks, Quarterly reports, which are analogous to 10 Qs. We file audited financial statements. So that's how investors can learn about the investment and understand the disclosures and the business and the risks. But as stage three, what's important for us is to seek SEC reporting status. Um, That's significant because it just creates more transparency for more investors. We report to the SEC, so they're reviewing all of our disclosures and, and, and risk disclosures and reports and things like that. And so in this third phase, we file something called a form 10 to register the shares trading on OTC markets under the securities act of 1934 or the exchange act, that's a really good process also, because it allows us to be in front of the commission, address the questions they have around the product structure, the underlying assets, it makes our disclosures really full and fair. And there's a really good level of engagement with the commission. And so using GPTC as an example, again, That product became SEC reporting in January of 2020. First digital currency investment vehicle to accomplish that. The other impact it has is it reduces that initial one-year holding period in the private placement to six months. So again, just making the product more accessible. And now what we're really focused on, which is the, the subject of this lawsuit, is converting GBTC into an ETF. What that would do is a couple of things. It would uplist the shares from OTCQX to, in our case, New York Stock Exchange. That's through a Form 19 b 4 It would also register the shares under the 33 Act, which would remove that initial holding period and make the shares freely tradable immediately. And then we would also be seeking Reg M relief to allow for both creations of shares that are registered now and also redemption of shares. And what that collectively does is address these premiums and discounts that GBTC has historically traded at. It would trade at NAV, it would be listed on exchange, and it would become really the the best vehicle for investors looking to gain Bitcoin exposure. Thank you, Greg. And it's important,
0: and one thing I wanted to underscore was those three prongs, right, those three benefits that come with it. It's not only the redemption mechanism, which I think a lot of people highlight, but it's also where the shares are lift, listed. And I'm sure there are institutions that can only invest on in shares listed on certain exchanges. So now it expose, exposes GBTC to a whole new class of investors. And then there's the holding period as well, right? That gets re- eliminated completely. Those all, to me, seem like more efficient capital markets mechanisms. They seem like benefits not only to GBTC and Grayscale, but to the investors. Well, now you're going. We've gone through oral arguments, and, and Don Varelli was part of the team at Grayscale that challenged the SEC's denial of the application to convert Grayscale Bitcoin Trust to a spot Bitcoin ETF and these were heard by the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. What happens if Grayscale wins that lawsuit? And maybe you could just give a high level. I I think the reasoning for the lawsuit is self-evident, but could you just give a high level of what would happen if Grayscale were to win that lawsuit in the best case scenario?
1: Yeah. So just to, to frame it, the reason why we want to win this lawsuit, the reason why we want the SEC to approve GBTC as an ETF and why that's where all of our time, energy, and resources are focused, is because GBTC has become the largest Bitcoin fund in the world. It has about $20 billion of assets under management. That's representing over 850,000 investors across all 50 states. It trades tens to sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars in daily trading volume, but it's not an ETF. And one of the main things that that results in is the shares are not trading in line with their net asset value. And so today GPTC is trading at 30 to 40% discount. If you're talking about a $12, 20000000000 billion fund, that's billions of dollars of value that's being kept from investors that would be addressed upon conversion into an ETF. And so that right there is a very obvious investor protection issue because you have value that can be returned to investors. The fact that it's already out there, Who are you really protecting by not allowing it to simply reach that next step, be listed on exchange where there's even more protections, surveillance, transparency and so on? It's a difficult situation to understand. That's also supported by the fact that, as you mentioned, the SEC has now approved another kind of Bitcoin ETF, one that holds Bitcoin futures, which are a derivative of Bitcoin. They're more complicated to understand. They're more costly the Bitcoin futures markets are directly impacted by the underlying spot markets. So it's just difficult to understand why we could be comfortable with a Bitcoin futures ETF, but not a spot Bitcoin ETF, like what GBTC would be. And so we started this process. We had started it back in 2017 and you've done a really good job of covering this with Greg on your, on your podcast also. And that was really the first wave of Bitcoin ETF applicants that first heard from the SEC. We refiled in 2021 because it was the same day that the first Bitcoin futures ETF started trading. To us, that was the key date that signified, well, now the commission must be okay with all kinds of Bitcoin ETFs. And so we filed then, received an overwhelming amount of support from the investment community, from academics, from institutional investors, who all really saw this clear investor protection issue. They saw the obvious unfair treatment of futures and spot ETFs. And then also there's this U S competitiveness component where you have Canada, Switzerland, Germany, Singapore, Australia. These are all countries with robust capital markets and securities laws. And so how are they getting comfortable with this, but not the U S those are a lot of the key prongs that have come out in this lawsuit. And as you mentioned, we had oral arguments, a couple of I guess it was in March, a couple of months ago, and it really seemed like the judges were, were seeing our, our line of reasoning as well, this is just common sense argument. To go back to your original question, what, why is it so important? It's important for GBTC to be an ETF because of the investor protections that would come with it. It's important to bring Bitcoin further into the regulatory perimeter through products like this as well. And then just the bigger picture is the, really the US competitiveness.
0: And in Canada, as you mentioned, we, we have funds and, and we have investment funds that are redeemable. And there was uh, tribunals that happened here. And a lot of the argument sat on whether Bitcoin was a liquid asset, whether there was large enough volume to be traded. And in, in part of the decision, the tribunal essentially said that they, the regulator is not a merit based regulator. There are rules that need to be followed. And if, as long as those are followed, it, it's fine. In the case with Grayscale, the SEC is basically, from my understanding, the crux of their argument is that these market surveillance and manipulation mechanisms that were available through the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the CME, they aren't available in the spot Bitcoin ETF case. But because evidence shows that 99.9% of the time, the price of Bitcoin futures and the spot market are correlated, it it's one of those where you're following the rules without thinking about why those rules are in place. It must, it's a bit frustrating to to have read that and see, but you're still ongoing in this, this lawsuit. So would a possible sort of win for Grayscale mean that now like that it would essentially reject the SEC's argument, but then what would happen after with the SEC and would Grayscale have to reapply to the SEC for this or could you just walk me through what the potential scenarios there would be?
1: Yeah, so this actually came up in oral arguments. Judge Rao asked the SEC's litigator what would they do if if the court ruled in our favor. And they raised three possible scenarios. One is the SEC goes back and approves. GBTC as a spot Bitcoin ETF, as well as the other spot Bitcoin ETF applicants. That's obviously what we think should be done. Another potential outcome is the commission could come up with other reasoning for continuing to allow Bitcoin futures ETFs to trade, but denying spot Bitcoin ETFs. It's really difficult to understand or think about what that other reason could possibly be once you overcome the crux of the case, which is around the potential for fraud and manipulation to impact the price of a Bitcoin ETF. As I mentioned, GBTC has been an SEC reporting company for over three years now, We're filing 10 Ks, 10 Qs, audited financial statements with the commission, continuing to work on making our disclosures full and fair and more robust. Custody is an issue that has long been solved. Right now we're using Coinbase Custody. They're a qualified custodian. We've never had any issues with managing and safeguarding assets. GBTC, as I mentioned, represents billions of dollars of value, nearly a million investors we often compare it just if it were an ETF today, how would it stack up with other ETFs and it's in the top 10 of both AUM and trading volume of the world's largest commodity-based ETFs. So it has all of these features to become an exchange traded fund. Who are we protecting by not allowing it to get there? Especially if the court does agree with that reasoning as well. It's the second option. A third option is in an effort to treat spot and futures the same rather than approving spot the commission could undo all of the Bitcoin futures ETFs. I I would hope that wouldn't be what they would do because I think that would cause even more disruptions and even less protection for investors because these Bitcoin futures ETFs now represent billion dollars, I believe of of value. They've been trading for a while. I think you would have a lot of investors that would be really harmed if you were to just undo that and, and dissolve their, their positions. And we don't think that should be done. We want more competition and more ways to access Bitcoin, depending on investor preferences. So you should be able to invest in Bitcoin through a Coinbase. You should be able to buy it directly on the command line or your terminal. You should be able to self custody. You should be able to buy Bitcoin futures, a spot Bitcoin ETF, really any way. And I think that benefits anybody who believes in Bitcoin. And even if you don't believe in Bitcoin, I think you still should find an issue with regulators, not justifiably restricting somebody from investing their money the way they want to.
0: Yep. It's amazing how it's shifted from a disclosure regime to a permissioning regime when it comes to capital markets. And full and fair disclosure was the crux of the 33 Act, even a credit investor exempt. Everything is sort of based on this equal information and and reducing the information asymmetry between the investor and the issuer. And and the case of Grayscale, when the crux of the argument is on something like fraud and manipulation of the price of Bitcoin on the ETF, it it can be a bit, it's surprising to see, but it it does point to a little bit of merit-based regulating.
1: Yeah. And in terms of disclosure to the SEC's credit, we've had a really constructive engagement with them as we've worked through first making our bitcoin product sec reporting but we've since done that with our ethereum product bitcoin cash ethereum classic zcash several other ones and each time they're coming back with very good questions about the underlying assets their protocols their use cases how they trade how we think about custody and work through all of that so we're getting really good engagement there and i think our disclosures are all state of the art and i continue to be impressed with that that dialogue that we have with them and working through those particular issues. On the merit side of things, you know, other things that we've, we've put in front of the commission, which came up in our case also, is we have quantitative studies showing that the Bitcoin futures market and the spot Bitcoin market are 99.9% correlated. So if you're okay with one, you really have to be okay with another one. And during oral arguments, one of the other judges, Judge Edwards, asked the commission what, what would you like to see from, from Grayscale? And the response, which is consistent with what they've been saying, is just more data. We want more data about the spot market and the futures market. They want this lead lag analysis to show which market is leading the other one, which is to say where price discovery is happening. And when when Don came up and had his final rebuttal, he, he brought that back up and said, Judge, in terms of data, we've given the data. It's the 99.9% correlation. That's based on studies that Coinbase did as a part of their amicus brief, as well as a study that a gentleman named Bob Whaley of Vanderbilt conducted. Bob is the inventor of the VIX index, which is the instrument that every investor uses if they want to bet on or against volatility in the markets. He did a study concluding that Bitcoin futures and spot are near perfect substitutes. So the data is there. And then in terms of this lead lag, Don, he, he stated it really eloquently. He said, if the futures market leads the spot market, well, that's a regulated market, the CME regulated by the CFTC, there's surveillance there. So you have protections there. If the spot market leads the futures market, well, the SEC has approved Bitcoin futures, so obviously they've gotten comfortable with any price discovery happening in the spot markets that would be implement- or impacting the futures markets. And if it goes both ways. Well, we went on A, we went on B, and therefore we went on C. And I think that really drove it home.
0: Yeah, and it must have been fascinating to work with Don and, and to prepare for this. Could you touch on a bit of what you learned from working with Don and working through these oral arguments in
1: preparation? Yeah, it's been really amazing to work with with Don. We reached out to him a couple of months before we found out from the SEC that we were denied because we thought we should have been approved in the initial application phase, but other spot Bitcoin TFs started to be denied. And we just wanted to be ready for all possible scenarios. And I remember on the first call with him, I gave him some quick background on, on where we were and he immediately understood the issues, picked it up right away. Um, and we were just so impressed with his ability to just get smart on the issues. He was the solicitor general under the Obama administration So he was litigating extremely important and complex cases. And if you're going to challenge decision by a federal regulator, someone like him and and him specifically is really the best advocate you can have. So it was a very obvious choice. I've gotten to learn his methods from working with him on this matter. And the way he approaches things are, he doesn't have to become an expert on on something at a very like deep level of minutiae. He needs to learn about it so he can explain it to the average person in a very just common sense and simple, compelling way. So he's done that with all the cases that he's he's litigated. And he completed that with, with this case. He had never done anything with Bitcoin or crypto or anything like that. And we were working on briefings and giving our input to the legal arguments that he was crafting. And then we did a couple of moot courts before oral arguments where It's basically just a practice round of, he, he gives oral arguments and then other attorneys at for his firm will pretend to be the panel of judges. And to just see the way that his evolution of speaking and explaining and arguing happened over the course of those several moot cases was so impressive. And then I remember after oral arguments, I sent him a message saying, great job today. It was one of the most professionally gratifying experiences for me as a lawyer, and all I was doing was just sitting there in the audience, just watching and listening to you. He's just his legal acumen, his skill set is unmatched, and he's also just a really great guy.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! What, what a great learning experience, not only for you, but even I found it beneficial reading through the transcript and seeing how questions were dealt with and, and how the common sense approach to explaining things is so much more persuasive than being overly technical or using language that is difficult to understand. So in terms of what's next, we touched on that. Can we just briefly speak on the Chevron deference? And that was something a few legal scholars had brought up as a possible thing being used in the case to give some deference to the SEC's decision here.
1: Yeah. So... Chevron deference essentially is, its what it says is the courts should defer to regulators in matters where Congress hasn't explicitly given their view. And if, the, if a regulator acts reasonably, the court should defer to their decision. It often comes up in complex technical matters and things like that. And the way it came up in this particular case, I think, is a reflection of what I would consider to be somewhat goalpost moving on, on why the commission has been continuing to treat spot differently from futures. And so if you go back to that original Bitcoin futures ETF that was approved, it was approved under the Investment Company Act of 1940, otherwise known as the 40 Act. That's the act that most futures based ETFs are regulated under. You can do them under the 33 Act, which is what every spot commodity ETF would have to be regulated under. And so at that point in time, the commission was saying the reason why we're treating futures differently from spot is because this is a 40 act product and the 40 act has additional investor protections. And so it's a different standard and we can justifiably treat them differently. And we really felt that that was a distinction without a difference in this context, because although the 40 act has added protections, they're at the fund level and not the underlying asset level. So the 40 act requires things like certain types of auditing and accounting restrictions on borrowing and leverage. You have to have certain types of independence and addressing conflicts. And those are all certainly good investor protection. But if you're worried about fraud and manipulation in the underlying Bitcoin markets, no amount of 40 act protection at the fund level will address that. So distinction without a difference. Fast forward to another Bitcoin ETF, futures ETF by an issuer called Tucrium that didn't do it under the 40 Act, they did it under the 33 Act. And we were closely watching that because if if the Commission denies it, they can still rely on this 40 Act distinction. If they approve it, well, you can't use that argument anymore. And they ended up approving that product. And so what was the reasoning now? What the Commission drew was, again, another distinction without a difference, in our opinion, which is to say that the Bitcoin futures trade on the CME which is regulated by, as I said, the CFTC, and there's surveillance there. But it's a distinction without a difference because if you agree that the underlying spot markets are impacting the futures market, no amount of regulation or surveillance in the futures market will again address that underlying spot market. And the commission even said in that approval order that they're not convinced the spot market doesn't impact the futures market. So again, just moving the goalpost. And then if you get to, to oral arguments, Chevron deference came up and it came up in the commission's final brief, which is them saying we've acted reasonably here and the court should defer to us. And we just continue to believe that this is one case where we disagree with the conclusion that they're reaching. And all along, I've been saying it's it's a very respectful, professional disagreement we just have with the commission. We didn't want to have to pursue litigation, but it's really something that we need to do on behalf of our investors. And to me, It's really something that we're doing for the greater Bitcoin community also. This product, if it's approval, make Bitcoin even more accessible, which anybody who's a proponent of Bitcoin really should want.
0: And it's such a good example of what makes America and, and a democratic society that follows a rule of law such a great place to live, where you can have disagreements with the people governing you, and you can go to court and present reasonable arguments backed by fact and have the court adjudicate on the merits and looking forward to hopefully a, a positive outcome for you guys there in terms of timing. Is there an expectation of when we'll hear from the court?
1: We're anticipating, and this is based on guidance from Don and his firm that we'll get a decision by the fall of, of this year. Wow. Yeah. So won't know when it's coming out before then, but that's, that's basically what we're targeting.
0: Okay. And so are there things that you are doing in anticipation of that potential outcome? Or, or is it a bit of let's we'll wait and see and, and figure out, depending on the decision, that'll really change the trajectory of what your next steps are?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, GBTC today is ready to be an exchange traded fund. We've spent an immense amount of time and, and resources and energy getting it ready. So Operationally, it is all set to to become the exchange-traded fund that we believe it eventually will be. So really just waiting it out in that regard, and then continuing to manage the rest of the Grayscale business. We have several other digital asset products that we're working on getting through that four-stage product lifecycle.
0: So, the last substantive question I have for you, Craig, is just regarding surveillance. And that's been a big theme in the SEC's sort of remarks around the application denial. What do they mean when they say surveillance and and surveillance that is possible in the manner similar to the CME market? Yeah.
1: So, what that's a reference to is being able to monitor transactions that are taking place on the exchange. It's really, it's two kinds on the exchange where the shares of ETF would trade as well as the underlying assets within the ETF. So in in the case of Bitcoin futures, Bitcoin futures on the CME, in the case of spot Bitcoin, Bitcoin on the various marketplaces where it trades. But this is actually something that hasn't come up in other commodity based ETFs. So if you think about gold, for instance, the SEC nor the CFTC surveil the underlying gold markets. And so that's actually an analogy that we've drawn in our lawsuit as well, and the same applies for other precious metal ETFs—gold, silver, copper, palladium. So that's a really good analogy that we've been making. And again, another instance where we feel like there's disparate treatment here that is unjustifiably preventing spot Bitcoin ETFs.
0: You're clearly becoming a strong advocate, and, and I, I'm sure some Don is, is rubbing off on you. That was a, that was a great answer. Honor. Thank I you. I don't know
1: if I'm quite there yet, but I appreciate it, Jacob.
0: Well, I'm convinced. So the last question I had for you, Greg, is what advice were you given early in your career that have sh- that has shaped who you have become?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think the advice I give, which I think reflects on what my approach to my career has been is finding something that you really like, as cliche as that sounds, but find ways that you can be valuable in that thing that you like. So in my, I, I knew that if I just went and pursued Bitcoin after law school, I wouldn't really be setting myself up for success. And so I made that sacrifice to, it's not really a sacrifice because I went to an amazing firm, but to really learn those skills that became invaluable ultimately in my career and having the patience to do that. And, you know, even if you're not loving the, the substance of what you're doing if you're gaining skills along the way and making the most of it, I think that's a really good way to ultimately end up being happy with what you do, which I very much am now. And then another, which can be a challenge, but I think is also important, is the difference between being an individual contributor at your company or your firm or wherever it is versus also learning to work with others and manage people and build out a team. When I joined Grayscale, basically everyone was their own department. I was legal. There was one person who was ops. <laughs> but we do rely on a lot of outside service providers, and that leanness might be misleading, but we have significantly grown since then with our people, we built out an amazing legal and compliance team. Everybody really wants to to work in this space. A lot of them come from more traditional institutional backgrounds because that's the kind of work ethic and mindset that we want. You might know about crypto at the level that you and I do at a deep technical level, but you also don't have to, as long as you're just willing to explore it and you have that intellectual curiosity. So yeah, so I think coming at it with with that desire and commitment to make the sacrifices, knowing that you're gaining skills along the way to make yourself valuable wherever you end up.
0: Yep, doing what you love and is such a key thing, and and then it feels like you're never really working a day in your life. You're you're doing what you want to do, and obviously, sometimes it can be tedious and monotonous, but. The emails aren't always the most fun thing to answer, but Greg, I wanted to thank you because this is something I really enjoy doing and getting the chance to speak with people like yourself is a privilege, so thanks for taking the time.
1: Yeah, I'm very happy to do it. I would love to come on your podcast again in the future, Jacob.
0: All right, man, we'll have you back in the fall when we get a positive outcome. All right, let's hope for it, yeah.